How do you build a medical expert witness business from the ground up? Find out from one physician whose practice is exploding with cases. Dr. Jordan Romano, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brett. So tell the audience a little bit about your education and what you're up to now. So I'm an internist. I trained at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire. For the past 12 years, I've been down in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital doing a mix of inpatient and outpatient medicine. But that's not why you're on the show today. The reason you're on the show today is because you and I had a really interesting conversation about your medical expert witness work. And you know, I've had a couple of guests on the show that talked about how to build a practice and how to keep a practice, right? How to do it well. But the way that you've built your practice was a little different. So that's what I want to talk about today. So first, why did you even get into medical expert witness work? More out of just a random event. A colleague of mine was tired one day and I saw him in the break room and I said, what's going on? He mentioned that he had a case and I said, oh, where's the patient I can help out? And he said, no, 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 it's medical expert witness work. And then he asked me, you know, how long have you been out of residency? And he said, oh, you could do this. He gave me a couple pointers and forwarded an email and I was off to the races. Wow. Serendipitous, serendipitous. What drew you to it that made you think, wow, I really want to spend a lot of my time doing this? I didn't start out that way. It was more of a curiosity. I was intrigued by the process. Back then, I got paper records. So the first case that I received, you know, there was something about holding that stack of records and leafing through it and trying to sleuth what happened. I was presented with a question. Did you feel the care was appropriate? And there was a specific question for that particular case. And I think it was just fascinating to me to just use my skills in a different way. And I found out that I was good at it. I still didn't know exactly what I was supposed to say to the lawyer or how I was supposed to communicate. Turns out that lawyers prefer phone conversations than emails with depending on what detail you're putting in it. That and, phone conversation is not discoverable. That's correct. And, you know, that connection is something to this day. I still receive cases from that lawyer and the ripple effects from that first case have carried on. There are second and third order referrals that I've received just from that first case. So coming up on a decade of doing this work and that first case definitely has ripple effects. So aside from just doing a good job, which clearly those are the ripple effects you're talking about, right? You do it well, and then they're going to bring you more business and they're going to refer their colleagues, right? So there's that. But there are other ways that you've grown your practice and even advised colleagues on how to grow their expert witness practices. So let's talk about that. Sure. I wouldn't trivialize the doing a good job. I think that that's huge. Charlie Munger, the, the famous investor, will say your next case, your next work, your next client is on your desk. So I certainly think that focusing on the work at hand, doing a phenomenal job, having quick response times, being well-prepared is huge to getting the next work, if you will. In line with further thinking of Charlie Munger, I like to inverse things. So when someone's saying, how do you grow something? I think about how could you ruin an expert witness practice? Being slow to respond is certainly a way to frustrate your clients. You could take every case and just give them the answer that you think they want to hear. You could do that. And then when it comes time for your deposition or trial, tell them, you know what? I've changed my mind. And actually, I'm not available for depositions or trials. That's part of this work. And so if you take enough cases, 
just by the law of numbers, you're going to be deposed. You're going to be on trial. Some people, and for some cases, you can do a review and actually say to them, you know what? I'm going to give you my thoughts on this case, but you're not going to want to depose me. That's something I've specifically said in a few cases. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. But I see myself as a guide to them to help explain the medicine. But also, because I've done this so long, I can help them with a little bit of strategy, if you will. And so I said, this is what you're going to be up against. And you don't want me to face these questions in a deposition because if asked, this is what I'm going to tell them. And I think that that really helps your client, the retaining lawyers. These are skills that a lot of us have, right? Because what do we do every day? We take the medicine and we distill it down in such a way that non-physicians can understand it, that non-experts can understand it. And that's what the lawyers need you to do. They need you to be able to distill this down to a way that they can understand it. And then they'll be able to help the jury, if it comes to that, to understand it. Like, that's it. You're just helping them understand the medicine behind what happened. Absolutely. Right? We do. And, and what I would say is to know how to help somebody grow their practice, I kind of need to know where you are specifically, right? Take a look at how many cases have you done? You know, where are those cases? What types of cases? Where are your strengths? What is your practice like in your daily life? I'm being deposed and I have a trial coming up that was about a year and a half to two years ago. And so there is a lag time. There's a long tail to these cases. So really, the cases you take today are going to impact your schedule about 18 to 24 months from now. So I think that knowing where you stand, knowing where you want to go to is a good place to start in terms of growing your business. You don't want to turn on the spigot, so to speak, knowing that your job is going to change and clinically you're going to be busier two years from now. That would be problematic. So that's one specific area that I would say. You know, the other thing to, to keep in mind is I would say in this space, if you're serious about it, growth is inevitable. It's going to happen. All of your viewers are well-educated. They know what hard work is they will get that ball rolling downhill. But just because it's inevitable doesn't mean it's eminent. doesn't mean it's going to happen soon. And there are certainly ways that you can pull that future forward, change the arc, if you will, of your practice. And I didn't have that opportunity. There weren't that many mentors when I was starting out doing this, and there are now. And so I would say, if that's something you're serious about, Sit down with your family, look at your practice, see where things are going to be moving. And in this post-COVID world, a lot of people are looking at that. And I would say, if you're serious, get around people who are serious about this and they can help you. There are a lot of people who know the roadmap, who have seen the trajectory, have seen people do this successfully again and again. Some of those folks have been on your podcast. I know those folks. I'm friends with them. We chat regularly. And I think... You, you can use your judgment to know who is serious about helping you and who has really done the work and has become successful in this space. And I just think being serious is having a mentor. I really wish I had one early on. So before you mentioned turning on the spigot, for some of the listeners, that spigot is stuck, right? It's stuck. There's there like dribs and drabs of water coming out of it. And yes, Doing a good job is important. Absolutely. 
but what are other ways of getting getting our names out there? So, you know, on other shows, we've talked about having a website, using LinkedIn, but this isn't what, you know, this isn't what we discussed in the past. We discussed actually getting in touch with personal injuries, personal injury attorneys in the area, right? So how do we, I mean, do we just send a letter or email or call, just open up the phone? Do we even have phone books? So the hypothetical phone book, right? Open it up to personal injury attorney, like attorney, A, P, personal injury, and just call all of them that are in our phone book. Like, how do we, how do we do this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of folks, first, you need to make a distinction, small distinction between personal injury and medical malpractice where I, and my practice started simply because I was introduced to medical malpractice. I've done some personal injury cases. Yes, those tend to be more local. The medical malpractice, I've worked in probably half the states in the country. How do you do that? You're right. If people don't know you, they can't hire you. And so there are lots of different ways. Some of them are the ways you mentioned to get your name out there. What I will say is a vast majority of the experts that I speak to are not comfortable putting their face out there, if you will. I have several mentees that despite me suggesting that they should again and again, they are against doing an advertisement. Maybe it's the institution they work for kind of allows them to do this work, but would prefer that they're not posting about it all the time. And so there are, there are ways to do that. You'll face some headwinds for sure if you're not, you're not in the a public format. But that's, again, why having individuals who have been there before and navigated this can find ways to help turn on that spigot without an advertisement or a post on social media. Okay, so finding a mentor. I hear where you're going with this. But like, what I'm looking for is like some brass tax advice for what sure. the listeners can start doing tomorrow. Send an email. Like, who are we looking for? Yeah, and we've talked about some of this before, Brad. And I think that one of the things that's interesting is not only do you have a network, but the network that you've started, even with just a couple cases, gets pretty large very quickly. So knowing where you stand more specifically is who have you worked for? And are you communicating with them? If it's been several months, since you've communicated with someone, email them. Email them and say, hey, I've enjoyed working for you. I'd like to just want to let you know my, my schedule is open. I'm open to taking more cases. Feel free to share my name with your colleagues. Spell it out. Say it specifically in an email. Lawyers call this solicitation. That sounds like a scary word, but y- you need to let individuals know that you are available. The other way that you can do it is if people give you cases. So I have several mentees and several colleagues that because I'm so busy, I pass cases on to them. So that's why the networking in this space is important. I'm going to likely pass cases on to you someday because you're a connection and I'm getting to know you. I think that that's very important. There are lots of avenues you could go down, but you do not need to have an ad. You do not need to be on social media. Those can be effective if you want to go that route. But I think that if you're serious about this space and you want to grow, you do need to treat it somewhat like a business. And that means networking. And I think that social media can be helpful for that. There are lots of different groups and rooms on, on, that you can find through the different 
social media channels. But at the very least, when you come across somebody's name, communicate with them. Here's another example that I'll give you. I was in a deposition recently. There is an opposing counsel who's evaluating me during that deposition, right? And so if they feel like I've done a good job, they may reach out to me with a case in the future. If a case settles, I think it's a great idea after it settles to reach out to that opposing counsel. Hey, we had a spirited debate during the deposition. You really had me a couple times. You had me sweating. Just wanted to let you know, I do cases for both plaintiff and defense. If you happen to hear of any, or you have a colleague that needs someone in my specialty, please give them my name. Those are specific ways that you can engage. But, it, but I think the bottom line is, the brass tacks is, if you want to grow, you have to be active. You cannot be passive. It will be inevitable, right? You will grow. But if you want to get that spigot on, there needs to be some sort of action. And that's with someone's help them doing it for you or you doing it by networking and by meeting other individuals. But again, I think that can be, there can be some headwinds with that as well. So networking. So I'm just imagining there being some medical malpractice attorneys of New York State or the greater Massachusetts, the greater Boston area, dinner at the Marriott. And so you go and you sit down at the bar and you have a drink and you stripe up a conversation with the person sitting next to you because they're probably a medical malpractice personal injury attorney. Is that, I mean, because if you're not on social media, then, you know, where else is this networking happening? I'm still not sure where people can find that first case aside from a mentor, hiring a mentor or just reaching out to someone that's been on the show before, something like that. Like, you know, they're starting from nothing. And so those are great ideas, Brad. I mean, I think initially you have to get a little scrappy to show that you can do the doing. You know, I think that somebody said recently, you know, how do you gain confidence? And, and uh, you know, it's not by shouting affirmations in the mirror. It's by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. And the only way that you can show that you are who you say you are is by doing the work. And you have to, it, it's not wrong to ask for it. I hope that your listeners will reach out to me. I would love to get to know people. It is, there is not enough networking in this space. And I think that if you get out there and you start meeting other experts, there will be a time. It happened early last week for me. I called up a colleague of mine. It happens, I call it Noah's Ark. I'll hear nothing for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden I'll have three cases come in. Well, I'm not going to take three cases or I could have a deposition coming up and I can't take any new cases. Or even, you know, another situation is a trial that takes even longer to prepare for. And my, co- my mentees, my network is going to benefit from me being busy. I will pass on those cases. And there could be a case next week where I, they need an ENT specialist. Well, guess what? I know one. And so I think I wish that happened where there were, there were trial attorneys that gathered a, a happy hour. Bar. Yeah, trial yeah, attorney boy, happy that, hour. That would be easy. But I think just with a little scrappiness and what's available on social media or just looking at where people do have advertisements, just engage with folks. You know, there are bi- a lot of the experts may not want to give you their time. They're very busy, but there are individuals who are in this space who are developing that, that network who love, you know, what they're doing here and want to help folks kind of get that escape velocity to get to the next level. 
And it will happen. It will happen. So is there a role for cold calling? Like, would you ever just send your resume and a letter or an email to MedMal groups in your area? It depends. Partly is you're not sure who you're emailing. And I'm not saying that I'd like to think that all lawyers are, are hold themselves to a high standard, but there are folks that, that may not. And you have to right. catch them at the right time. It's sort of, it's, it's a decent strategy. Here, here's an analogy. There are folks who try buying houses that way, right? They, they just call everybody. Hey, are you thinking of selling your house? The problem is you got to call a couple thousand it's high people. volume, low yield. Yeah. That's absolutely. So there's no ROI. Yeah. That, that's absolutely right. Then the question is, is it wrong to email? No, it's not. But it's, you threw in one part in there that I would, that I would correct. And I don't typically advise individuals to do, which is I see people, I call it, well, it's a preference. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a mistake, but they give out their CV already. And the difficulty that I, or the challenge that I have with that, and I would challenge your thinking on that is you don't know what someone's thinking. I want to have a conversation with the lawyer, right? I want to call somebody up and talk to them as I do now. And I frequently do. If somebody sends me an email, I might just pick up the phone and call them and be like, hey, tell me about this case. And the next thing you know, it's happened several dozen times. It happens every, several times a year at least where they're like, you know what? I actually have another case or, and I'll throw in there at the end of a conversation. Hey, you know, my docket's kind of, my schedule kind of open if you have another case or if a colleague does. And within a day, they'll call back. Oh, you know what? John down the hall has a case as well. And so when you get somebody on the phone, it allows you that opportunity to have that a conversation in real time. And I think that that's important. If you simply post your CV out there, you don't know who's consuming it. Meaning there could be someone with a case who would have hired you, but they're making the decision based on the CV. I don't really want somebody to make a decision solely based on the CV. I, wanna, I want the opportunity to vet them as well. And so if they're calling me to say, hey, I might have a case for you. Can you send me a CV? You can talk to them. How many cases do you guys do a year? Oh, tell me about this case. Are they organized? Do they seem scattered? Is it a small shop and they only do one case a year? Are they doing this as a favor to a friend? Avoid those cases. At least I do. Okay. And so so I, actually, I, now that you've mentioned that, avoiding the cases, I think we should discuss that because we, we had talked about it before the show and I thought it was really interesting. You know, I think the cases to avoid, we've talked about this with other guests. One is clearly if you're not comfortable with the medicine, like it's, if it's not part of your practice, if it's not something you're super comfortable opining on, then don't, you know, pass that on. There is someone out there with enough expertise. Now don't have imposter syndrome and think that you're not expert enough to opine on anything. But make sure it's within your area of expertise. So aside from that, what are the other reasons you would have for avoiding cases? Yeah. And I like that you couch that, that question by saying, you know, don't sell yourself short because I do see experts doing that. I was mentoring a neurologist who's a headache specialist and we were reviewing his history and he said, you know, he's turned down something like four times the number of cases that he's taken but they were like general neurology questions. And I said, you know, you're an expert in neurology. I can't comment on the standard of care of a neurologist, but you can. Now, if you just want to do headache cases, that's fine. Do, okay, we can focus on that. But to turn down a case because you don't think you're qualified when I think you're qualified, that's something we need to revisit. We are trained to examine patients, 
to interview patients. I don't want to oversimplify it by saying you'll know, but you can kind of smell when something doesn't, doesn't fit. When somebody calls you up and when you Google them, there, which I encourage you to do. What is their what does their website look like? Do they have a website? Right? I think that those are important things. If they are a retired lawyer, if they are a lawyer re representing a friend, if they don't take many malpractice cases per year, if they need a rush job and another expert dropped out, ask why. These are some of the the pitfalls that individuals can fall into. It's I haven't taken many cases, so I'm going to take this case versus this could be a marginal case. Now, as you become more skilled, as you become more comfortable in the space, you can navigate those gray areas because I'll be honest with you, when you evaluate a lot of these cases, at least from an internist hospitalist perspective, you have the records, but you don't have everybody's perspective. You haven't gotten to, many times, you haven't gotten to discovery where they're deposing people and asking the physician, what happened? And I think that that's, that's essential and it's an essential part of the process. Now, there's some subspecialties where the facts are just the facts. They're bringing you in. They're asking you a very simple, narrow question because they want to know, should they include your spe an ENT specialist or not? And I think that that's something that is easier to do than you're the attending of record and there were six specialists involved and you need to dissect who was called when and it's a my job can be a little harder than you than yours sometime in this space it should be evident if you're uncomfortable that says something now again i think that's why it's helpful to have somebody to bounce these things off to off of because sometimes you have a case that that's legitimate and that's just the lingo that the lawyers use and you're getting spooked when you don't need to so something that happened to me recently is I was approached by a company that it's a referral service, right? Like they will send you cases. Hey, doc, would you be interested in this case? Yeah, that That's sounds right. interesting. Tell me more. And then they sent me a letter with a restrictive covenant. And you know how doctors feel about restrictive covenants, right? They're like, there they're are handcuffs and they, you know, it's awful what's done to us professionally, you know, but in this setting, I feel like we have a little more leverage. So I told them that wasn't something that I'd be interested in pursuing because of the restrictive covenant, right? As you said, if the lawyer likes you and they think you do a good job and they refer their colleagues and they refer their, right, their partners, this restricts this. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but, you know, you'd have to go through them, which is fine. I mean, I guess that I get that business model, right? They don't want you to be taking food off their table, but, you know, it just didn't, as you said, it just didn't pass the smell test. It just didn't sit right with me. So what are your thoughts on that? There are lots of different avenues to grow your business. Referral services are one. There are lots of them out there. I like in this space kind of a buy doctors for doctors model. So I think there's just that inherent trust that they've been through what we've been through in terms of residency and training. You know, I think when you're early on, for me, it's about degrees of freedom. Look, when you turn that spigot on, it's kind of hard to turn it off and then turn it back on. So once you get started and the spigot's on, if you really want to shut it off and your message now to all the, to all the, you know, these feeder groups or to the lawyers is I'm not taking any more cases. It's hard to undo that. It's not impossible, but it, it, there definitely will slow you down a bit if you want to get started again. So you just increase your prices. If you increase your fees to the point where they're like, actually that's, 
you're getting a little too big for your, for your britches now. We'll go find someone else. That you know, to me would be a good way to slow things down. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. And going back to your other question real quick, I think that it's not wrong to, to join one of these groups. You bring up a great point, though. Limiting your degrees of freedom early on is, I don't think it's necessary. While there are individuals that join these groups and they wouldn't be in business if they didn't get cases for physicians, I think it's a great option for some. If you're very busy and you want somebody to manage the whole thing for you, lock, stock, and barrel, get me cases, bill for me, and just mail me a check and tell me where to show up and when, that's great. But I think when you're just starting out, you want to have that latitude because you don't know what this can become. If you want this to become, a lot of people have, you know, 5X, 10X type of goals. I don't think those covenants, you're not aligned in those. And I think that you'll be hamstringed. It's a decent way to get cases. But for most physicians, I would probably not start out there. So let's talk about you specifically and how you run your business, right? A few months ago, we had Dan Sandman on, who I'm sure you know, and he's fantastic. Listeners, if you haven't heard his episodes, definitely check them out. He's a lawyer in this in this space, and he actually helps physicians to build their practices. Um, and so we talk about a retainer agreement and the importance of the retainer agreement. So what's in your retainer agreement? Not too dissimilar from most experts. And I think that, that that's a reason because there's a recipe that works and you should use it. You know, we were talking beforehand that I have a mentee that he's very busy in the personal injury space. And I asked him, we were talking about numbers. He didn't have a retainer agreement. It was shocking to me. I couldn't believe that he didn't have a retainer agreement. So that's something that, that we're working on and that it helps slow down the spigot because his spigot was wide open. He just was really struggling, to be honest yeah. with you. So my retainer agreement is straightforward. It includes just an upfront fee. I rarely exhaust that in the first review. I think, again, I, I don't think they're meant to set this up as an adversarial interaction. I'm very upfront. I was just having a conversation before we went on the air. I have a trial coming up and they're probably going to settle beforehand. You know, it's an open, honest communication. If you can't have that with the retaining lawyers, you are therefore, in my mind, putting these people in a category with, it was nice to work with you, but I'm probably going to pass next time. I, I was chatting with them about, they said, what's your cancellation fee? If we settle this, we're going to, you know, we may have another trial hearing coming up. And if it goes my way, this will likely settle. You know, remind me of what your fee is again for if we're booked for a trial for two weeks. And what does that look like? It's not too dissimilar. There, there are ways that, again, I would just ask folks, I'm happy to share mine with, uh, with your listeners if they wanted to see it. it. Again, it's simple, it's straightforward, and it's something that it's not just there as a protection. It's a conversation piece. I'm not saying I change things on it, but what I'm saying is you have to talk about this. If you can't talk about the money with the lawyers, um, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And I think yeah. that that's a skill that you have to get used to as well. Know your worth. Know your worth. So actually that, that dovetails into the next question, which is how do you even come up with a fee schedule? Like where do you pull these numbers out of? For me, there, you know, I've had some mentoring from lawyers in recent years. And so that was helpful for me to just say, you know what, Jordan, it's, you've been at it for a while. You've had it so much experience. It's time to raise that level. It's just based on a, essentially a market price. 
a neurosurgeon will be in, depending on how busy they are and what they want to charge, it's typically on the higher range. It's 800 to even over 1,000. I've seen 1,500. Uh, and that's just per app. That's an hourly charge. Well, that's because um, they bill out, right? Because they're doing brain and spice. They're, they're doing some high-risk stuff. So yeah. please, pay them, pay them a lot of money. Well, and right? also keep in mind, if you're away from, if you're not operating and you have to take a day off of operating to go testify, your compensation needs to match. Oh, yeah. What you, it needs what to reflect that. Absolutely. Oh, no. And myself, my own retainer agreement, you know, the cancellation policies and charge for cancellations, it's based on the fact that if I cancel like a day and then, you know, I find out that the, you know, the deposition has been moved or something like that. If it's three days from now and I open up my schedule, my schedule is going to fill. Like that's just how my, not because I'm so amazing, right? I mean, I am, but you know, it's just, it's just the nature of otolaryngology. Like my schedule is just going to fill up really quickly. So it's, there's no reason for me to charge them for it. And so that's where you come up with these numbers. How much is lost work going to cost you? How much is this extra work going to cost you? And is it worthwhile for you? And if you've been doing it for a long time, increase your fees. Your experience counts for a lot. You know, you can slowly, in, you know, when you're starting out, your fees should be lower. You shouldn't be trying to hit the mean of wh whatever it is in your particular specialty because you don't have the experience. And you can let the lawyer even know that and be like, listen, I'm keeping my fees low. And they'll be like, okay, well, I'll guide you through it. Or they'll say, you know what? I don't think this is the case for you because we're looking for someone with more experience. But then when you have a case down the road, when, because you're honest with them, I think they're going to, that's going to reflect well on you and they're going to, they're going to remember you. I think those are fantastic points. And I think one of the, you know, things that I've had mentees say to me is, well, it's easy for you to say, you, you know, you've been trained at a Harvard, at Harvard and you're at an Ivy League institution and that's why you're successful. I can tell you, I have been excluded from cases because of that. There are, I was just at a trial where they hired two hospitalists and we, they were sitting there and they thought the jury would be more responsive to the other individual that they had retained. So they picked a younger looking male and they picked a more motherly older female. And so they were playing to the jury based on, based on who they felt the jury would respond to. So I think sometimes that being, you know, new is, it's actually a strength. I don't think, I have seen more experts that are crushing it, that are from Midwest at a hospital that I didn't know existed. Most people haven't heard of. And they were selling themselves short when really they make excellent expert witnesses. They just need a little help. And lawyers love it. They, it, the pedigree, yeah. the pedigree piece of it is a small, small fraction of optics. what they're looking for. Optics, Absol optics. And so if you're relatable, actually, if the listeners would go way, way back to the interview I did with Gita Pensa, who actually has an amazing podcast herself about being on the other end of malpractice litigation. Yeah. And actually, I would argue that based on her experience, we need more ethical people to be doing med mal work on both sides of it. So that if you review a case and you're like, listen, it seems like this doctor was doing, did everything they could. I really don't think you have a case here. Then that's what the lawyers hear when that's what really happened, rather than someone with fewer scruples than you who's going to be doing it just for the paycheck. And is going to, you know, they're going to try and break that physician who was doing a good job, doing the best they could over the coals. So what I'm saying with the Gita Pensa, her amazing podcast, The L Word, I think it's called Elward yeah. Litigation of Physicians. It talks a lot about the optics, that it's theater. 
as you said, picking someone that looks a certain way and sounds a certain way is what the lawyers are going to go for. And so being able to speak in such a way that's easily understood. Again, this is what we do every day, but I can see where, you know, the having the big H of Harvard on your resume would work in some circumstances, but may not work in others. It depends on how they're trying to play the optics in the theater. A hundred percent. And I think that, again, I think when you're starting out, it's just about, it is just about doing good work. I have a colleague who was involved in a case, the expert on the other side in a trial was way above his skis, leaning over his skis, arguing that a CRP, a C-reactive protein of three indicated overwhelming infection and that something needed to be done about it. There are ways that he could have been an expert in that case that he didn't have to go that far. You know, I, I think that's the other thing to keep in mind is that some of these cases are truly gray area. And you could argue both sides, but what you don't want to do is start feeding into a narrative and start saying things, seeing shapes in the clouds that just aren't there. You know, a CRP of three is not an overwhelming infection. And in this case, this individual said it twice, was emphatic about it. And it's just that, you know, when they're a prompt, when they come from a prominent institution, it just comes off comes off the wrong way. Yeah. And we need those people. We need more people, you know, with a moral compass out there to kind of make those individuals less relevant here. Because I think ultimately you're, yes, your paycheck is coming from the lawyer. You're technically working for the law firm, but I think you need to think of it as you're working for the justice system, right? You're trying to make, you're trying to Make the medicine clear. You're not on a side per se. If you think they have a bad case, let them know over the phone, not in an email. So it's discoverable that, you know, and explain the medicine because that's what you're there for. You're there to explain the medicine, not pick a side. That, and one that caveat, individual clearly did. Yeah. One caveat too is every state is different. So that's part of one of the things I've learned being in 24 states. There's some states where there are no depositions. It's just reports. There are states where emails are discoverable and others where they're not. And so speaking to your lawyer, I mean, that's the fun part of this is like you're learning, you have this expertise, but you're learning a whole new world and how to operate in that. And you're absolutely right. They know enough usually to be dangerous. They have it and they could be wrong. They could have a theory of the case as to what the cause was, but you're like, actually, not only did they miss X and why, but X, Y, Z, one, two, and three. So it is essential to be involved. It's really, I think the folks that are, that like your viewers that are doing it, it's a lot of fun. It really is. To me, it's been stunning how much it's grown. It's hard to believe time has gone by so quickly, but it is exciting for me to meet other people like yourself to, that are in it and that are learning it. And it's evolving too, right? There are laws that will pass affecting lawsuits and how they're handled in every state. Some states are wildly different than others. California with their caps of 250K. In Texas, it's 250,000 per physician that's included. So what you'll do, what you'll see is sometimes lawyers wanting to include more physicians because the upside's higher. Well, they also don't want to include somebody who's just going to be thrown out because then they just paid a lot of money to an expert yeah, just to have and somebody wasted their own out. time. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah. 
you're helping them save money in a lot of these in a lot of these cases too. So being upfront, having the hard conversation, that's something that I wish I would have learned early on. There there was a few cases that I just sat on. I kept punting when to chat with him. And finally, the lawyer said, there's nothing here, is there? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. There isn't. And I couldn't have the, you know, nobody wants to hear that their kids are ugly is the saying, right? And <laughs> yeah. I had to tell him, you've got nothing here. Like, absolutely nothing. And he was but like, the great, sooner I'm they know that, the sooner uh, they can move on. They, you know, a good life is measured by the number of hard conversation you've had. I think, I think Tim Ferriss, that might have been Tim Ferriss or Tim Ferriss might have been quoting someone. I don't know. But yeah, those conversations are important. Jordan. If people want to find you, you have a coaching business yourself, which is kind of what you were alluding to earlier, where you you help physicians to build their expert witness practices. So if they're interested in getting in touch with you, how do they do that? Medicalexpertwitness.com. You'll see it's a new course. That's why I'm in a recording studio now. I'm testing that out. Medicalexpertwitness.com. It's called the Accelerator Program. And what I did was created a mix because every expert's unique. Your story is a little bit different than someone else. Each specialty is unique. So it's a mix of live course work and one-on-one coaching because everybody has specific questions. Everyone will have unique scenarios come up. Some people will have depositions. Some people will be on to trials. Some people will just be on like, how do I ramp things up and specific scenarios. Some people will just be in personal injury. And so that's why I wanted to make something that was bespoke. It's special to you. So it's a course that's nuts and bolts, but it is also, let's talk about Brad. Where are you specifically and where are your challenges? Because, you know, I think that personal therapy, if you will, is important. It's my favorite subject. Let's talk about Brad. Fantastic. All right. Well, Jordan Romano, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with the course. Same to you. Thank you, Brad.